0: Hello, my gorgeous listeners and the ugly ones. I think we all know no one who listens to The Lee Show could be ugly. Thanksgiving is in the air. I am thankful for all of you. Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday, I think. I love roasting a turkey. I think I'm going to start making turkey more frequently. I was thinking about this recently. I, not just at Thanksgiving. And The key, I discovered this a few years ago. The key to roasting the turkey is the bag. You have to roast the turkey in this giant oven safe plastic bag. And they sell them at the supermarket. You just ask, like, where are the turkey bags? They sell you a two pack of them. They're really cheap. So you brine the turkey overnight in buttermilk and spices. You use a lot of bay leaves. And the trick with the bay leaves, by the way, is you got to rip them up before you put them in the brining solution. You put in a ton of salt. And then the next day, you you rinse the turkey off, you season it, you rub oil on it, you put some lemon and garlic and herbs in the cavity, whatever you're going to do. And then you put it in the bag and you roast it for a few hours at like 325. Don't touch it. Don't open the oven. Don't fuck with it at all. And when there's about 30 minutes left, you slice the bag open and just leave it. It works like a charm. I uh, I love spending Thanksgiving with my extended family they're all very entertaining they're all drunks but they're all very entertaining drunks very high on the charisma factor uh one of my cousins uh one of my favorite cousins really an amazing guy he he always manages to do something fun like he'll crawl into bed naked with his mother or he'll pee on the tv or something and my job at thanksgiving is basically to just administer narcan to everyone present but that's fine. It's it's entertaining. Uh, I've mentioned before that I love to antagonize my family at Thanksgiving. So I try to think about the things that I can say that will make them the most agitated. Uh, last year, I went with trans people are braver than the troops. So I just say it totally deadpan and then I wait for people to react and I sit back and watch. So this year, I got some inspiration from Instagram. Here's a few lines I'm considering. Please uh, write in. Let me know which one I should go with. So, So the four options I'm considering are, number one, the war on drugs is racist. Number two, psychedelics have medicinal value. Number three, people who use drugs deserve compassion. And number four, Imperialist U.S. drug policy is the reason drug cartels exist. So what, what do you think? Should I drop one of those and then just let the rest of my family just go totally apoplectic and, and like have, have seizures and, or something, uh, cause they're going to get so angry. Uh, the theme of today's podcast, besides antagonizing my family is the way that the media deceives us and, On the All In podcast, uh, which is another great show, they made a point this past week that jumped out at me. They said, stop calling it the mainstream media. These are just content companies. And, And that's really what they are. They're businesses that are trying to maximize profit. And sometimes that comes from deceiving us. Sometimes it comes from doing what I do to my family, from just getting people fired up. And that is how they make money. And we're used to treating them a certain way as these sort of quasi utilities that are there to, to, to educate us and inform us. But they're not that anymore. And we have to throw out those prior assumptions. The, the new data points are the relevant ones. And we have to start treating these companies in a different way. And I'm going to focus on two examples. That highlight this. The first is the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. And the second is some more discussion of a topic we've covered in the past, which is this Facebook whistleblower. And I I say that in in quotes because, you know, she wasn't really blowing the whistle on anything. and, And she testified before Congress this past month. I think these content companies, I think the media has reached a low point in trustworthiness. And this should not surprise us. You know, the way that the, the media covered the Rittenhouse trial was to focus on race baiting and on getting people all frothed up with anger. And it, it was inaccurate reporting because it drove clicks and eyeballs and it was deeply divisive, right? This trial became this sort of Rorschach test in which people seemed to view the original events and the trial and the verdict through whichever lens they wanted. To view things, it was mood affiliation. So Kyle Rittenhouse was found not guilty this week by a jury of his peers. And both before and since the verdict, I have heard outrage from personal friends, from social media. The outrage seems to stem from two things. First is from what seems to be a misunderstanding of many or even all of the facts of the Rittenhouse case. There is this perception that's amplified repeatedly that Kyle Rittenhouse was a white supremacist vigilante who had driven across state lines to the town of Kenosha, Wisconsin. It's been asserted that he brought this powerful rifle to a town that he had no reason to be in, that, that he did it because he hated the Black Lives Matter movement that he wanted to kill some people. Like If you watch CNN, if you simply read tweets from Congress people, and I'm going to link to them in the substack, if you even listened to President Biden on the campaign trail, this is what you would believe. And half the people I speak to seem to think that he shot three black people. I've seen memes that purport to show a contrast between Tamir Rice, and Kyle Rittenhouse. Tamir Rice, for those who don't know, was a a black child. He was 12 years old. He was playing with a toy gun, and he was shot by a white police officer. And, you know, I played with toy guns as a kid. I loved them. Sometimes I did it outside, and I can easily play this mental movie imagining my life going differently or ending very early because of playing with guns. It's really tragic. But the premise is that somehow because Tamir Rice was shot, Kyle Rittenhouse should go to jail. And I don't get the connection. You know, my friends who are most agitated about Kyle Rittenhouse are the ones who would argue most forcefully against the prison industrial complex, the prison industry that profits either in outright net income or in the creation of an entire industry and jobs for many thousands of people. I'm not in favor of growing that bureaucracy, but putting an innocent person in prison isn't going to help anyone. It doesn't create justice or fairness or equality. There is no parallel between Tamir Rice and Kyle Rittenhouse. But the problem is that none of the reporting from CNN was accurate. And maybe it was politically convenient. Maybe it made people feel better about this case. But I think this sort of proves the point that the the media sources, these content companies are broken. You know, I've talked about the seminar I'm taking with Arnold Kling about irrational institutions. So if we treat CNN as an institution, I think we can. I think that that's a fair characterization. But we also have to remember that CNN is just a collection of people. And those people have biases and beliefs. The institution, the company has a mission and its first mission is to make money. And maybe it has some organizing principles or a mission statement or a, a, a particular way it goes about making money, but its mission is to make money. And so you've got a bunch of people and they're all part of a a culture that encourages them to do certain things to make money. and this institution has found a niche in provoking outrage and saying stuff that people will want to watch. I understand that. It frustrates people because we have this perception, this memory that it was not always like that, a sort of nostalgia that CNN used to be like charging into some war torn area to tell us about some terrible thing that was going on and in, a, in an honest and credible way right and so you know think about our, our our bayesian reasoning here right we we used to assume that it was a certain thing we had all these data points that told us cnn is this credible institution that does this certain thing and then we have these more recent data points that tell us that cnn is a different thing and this applies equally to say the new york times or the washington post they're a different thing now than they used to be and so What do we do? Do we assume that the most recent data points are faulty and rely on our prior assumptions? Or do we throw out those old assumptions and give a lot of credence to the more recent data points? And I think that's what we need to do. We cannot continue to assign credibility to this institution. Because that's no longer how this institution organizes itself. It's no longer there to inform us. It's just there to make money in the most effective way possible. I don't blame them for that, but I have to recognize that there is this deficiency. So let's break down the facts of the Rittenhouse case. What actually happened? There is no evidence that Kyle Rittenhouse was connected to white supremacist groups at the time of the shooting. We know that he was a fan of the police, that he was a member of this police explorer program, which was a sort of police officer recruitment pipeline. He was also a firefighting and EMT cadet with the fire department in the town of Antioch, Illinois. That's where he lived with his mother and his sisters. And Antioch, and I'm going to post a map in the substack, Antioch is right next to the Illinois-Wisconsin border. It's a 20-minute drive from Kenosha, Wisconsin. Kenosha is where Kyle's father, his grandmother, his aunt, his uncle, his cousins all lived. It's a town, given that his whole family lived there, where Kyle had a close connection. And on the morning of the shootings, Kyle had gone to Kenosha to scrub graffiti that had been sprayed on the local high school. Does that mean he was doing the right thing when later on that night he was patrolling around with an assault rifle? No, I I don't think so. I think it was pretty idiotic of his mother to let him go do this. I don't think he's a a dude I want to be friends with. This is a guy who, since he was arrested, has been photographed making signs, hand signs that are associated with the white pride movement. I think he was a naive and dangerous fool. And he may be a, a a hateful person. I don't know. He may hate Jews, for all I know. But I don't think he committed a crime in this case. And I think that has been portrayed incorrectly. Now, the gun that he used had been purchased by an older friend. It had been stored at the home of that friend's stepfather in Kenosha. And it was, importantly not illegal for Kyle to be carrying the gun. And y- you may take issue with this. You may say it should have been illegal, but it was not illegal. So what was going on in Kenosha, Wisconsin on the night of the shooting? Well, the catalyst for for this rioting that was taking place was the shooting of a black man named Jacob Blake. And I'm not going to dissect the Blake shooting here, but it caused mass widespread riots. And it's interesting to note that most of that rioting was being done by white people. These these white folks who were loosely allied with the Antifa movement, and it was designed to maximize chaos and destruction. The rioters were primarily people who were not from Kenosha. They were people who had traveled across state lines. And we'll come back to that phrase again. The, these folks who had traveled Great distances, just to come and fuck up this town, they had no business being there a lot they they had a lot less business being there than Kyle Rittenhouse had to be there. He had family in this town. this was just a bunch of fucking morons who descended on this town to to create anarchy and to obliterate property and to screw up the town. You know I, I remember studying libertarian philosophy when I was in high school, and the hardcore libertarians believe that the government has three purposes, and that's it. A military to protect us from foreign enemies, a police force to protect us from domestic lawbreakers, and a system of courts with which to enforce the laws. And they think those are the the three things for which it is ethical to tax people. They're common goods that only the government provide, and that's it. Now, I believe that government can and should provide more than that. But those functions all make sense. They're a starting point and they make sense. But on the night of the Rittenhouse shooting, the police had completely neglected to do their job. In many cities, in many states, police forces had decided not to protect property, municipal property, private property. Could you imagine, put, put yourself in the shoes of being a taxpayer in Kenosha, Wisconsin. So you pay your taxes year after year, and you expect that the police, whose salaries you pay, would show up to protect the town. That's their job. And yet they deliberately chose not to do that. So if you were a resident of this town, if you felt some measure of civic pride, wouldn't you feel some kind of impetus to try to protect the town? Wouldn't you be upset if this group of anarchists showed up and started fucking things up, I would be. So what about the notion that Rittenhouse was out looking for a fight? Let's understand what was going on in a bit more detail. So you have these, these white anarchists that are destroying the town. Many of them were armed with knives, with guns. And then Kyle Rittenhouse is there. He shows up. He's got a first aid kit. People are saying he was pretending to be an EMT. I don't know. I mean, the guy was an EMT in training. He's trying to help people. He offered medical assistance to some of the anarchist protesters before the shooting. He ran. This is a guy who ran with a fire extinguisher to try to put out some of the fires that had been set by the protesters. And what about the people that he shot? I'm going to include in the substack a video of one of the people that he shot Joseph Rosenbaum. It was filmed a little bit before the shooting, just a few minutes before the shooting, and he was screaming at someone, shoot me, N-word, and he kept repeating it. Shoot me, N-word. Of course, saying the word. Rosenbaum, this guy, was a convicted sex offender. Not a great dude. He had forcibly sodomized a group of five boys, ages nine to 11, and then he had spent about a decade in prison for it. I don't know why he, he got out after that, but he had spent about a decade in prison for forcibly sodomizing a group of boys. Now, I'm not saying Kyle Rittenhouse knew it when he shot this guy, but this was a violent and dangerous guy. This was not a good dude, Joseph Rosenbaum. You know, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley tweeted that the people that Rittenhouse shot had, quote, assembled to affirm the value, dignity, and worth of black lives. You know, I don't I don't think that's a fair characterization. I don't think that a violent sex offender running around and screaming the N-word is dignifying black lives. I don't think that's a remotely accurate characterization of what was happening. So what about the actual shooting and the sequence of events building up to it? Well, earlier in the night, Kyle Rittenhouse had been confronted by Joseph Rosenbaum, the the child molester who's running around screaming the N-word. And during that encounter, Rosenbaum had gotten in Kyle Rittenhouse's face and told him if he saw him again, he would kill him. So you've got this dangerous convicted felon, seems like a lunatic, threatening to kill him. And at about 11.45 PM, a couple minutes after that, Kyle Rittenhouse was being pursued across a parking lot by a large group of people. And Rosenbaum, the sex offender, threw a bag of items at Rittenhouse. Another anarchist protester named Joshua Zeminski fired a gunshot in the air. Now, remember that many of the people present were armed, not just Rittenhouse. And at the sound of the shot, Rittenhouse stopped running and he turned towards the sound of the gun. And at that moment... Joseph Rosenbaum engaged Rittenhouse and tried to grab the rifle from him. Kyle Rittenhouse fired four shots at Joseph Rosenbaum. He hit him in the groin, the back, and the left hand. And Rittenhouse then ran down the street towards some police vehicles with some of the protesters in pursuit. And there's there's cell phone videos galore of this with the protesters screaming, beat him up and get him, get that dude. One individual struck Rittenhouse, which caused him to fall. He he tripped and he fell to the ground. And one of the anarchists jump kicked him while he was still on the ground. And then another violent rioter, a man named Anthony Huber, started hitting Kyle Rittenhouse with a skateboard and tried to grab the gun away from him. And as Anthony Huber pulled on the rifle, Kyle Rittenhouse fired once hitting Huber in the chest and causing his death. And then came the third encounter. A man, I can't quite pronounce his name, named Gage Grosskreutz, testified that he heard gunshots, as he testified in the trial, that he heard gunshots and he ran towards Rittenhouse. And he said that he believed that Rittenhouse was an active shooter. Now, Grosskreutz had an expired permit to carry a concealed weapon. So it was not he was not carrying it legally, and he is carrying a Glock pistol, and he runs towards Rittenhouse, who is still on the ground, and Rittenhouse had put his hands up in the air, and Grosskreutz pointed his handgun at Rittenhouse and advanced towards him, at which point Rittenhouse picked up his gun and shot Grosskreutz in the arm. So I'm going to read a, a quick excerpt from the trial testimony from a couple of weeks ago, okay? The prosecutor says, when you were standing three to five feet from him with your arms up in the air, he never fired, right? And then Grosskreutz says, "Correct." And the prosecutor says, "It wasn't until you pointed your gun at him, advanced on him with your gun, now your hand is down, pointed at him, that he fired, right?" And Grosskreutz says, "Correct." So when, when Grosskreutz had his hands up in the air, Rittenhouse didn't shoot him, but when he's pointing his gun. At Rittenhouse, when it's whoever fires first wins and the other guy is fucked, that's when Rittenhouse shot him. Amazingly, at least 16 gunshots from other sources were heard on video during the time that Rittenhouse was on the ground. This was a chaotic scene. The police were doing jack shit. But none of this tells us that Rittenhouse sought to kill anyone, nor that he was there to pick a fight or to instigate violence. It seems pretty clear that he was there to protect his town, and he got caught in a mob of violent anarchists, many of whom were armed. And this poor guy who sees his town getting totally destroyed, he decides it's time to step up to pick up the slack because the police were not doing anything. But based on that chain of events, which is supported with ample video from multiple angles, it seems pretty damn hard to argue that this was anything but self-defense. And the case is tragic. It's terrible. It's awful that this town was overrun with these these moronic instigators, that the police didn't stop them. It's awful that Kyle Rittenhouse felt the need to fill that void. Or that so many armed people got into a confrontation. But I don't see how you can say that Rittenhouse was not defending himself. But if you watch any coverage of this on CNN, on MSNBC, in a lot of these other content sources, one would come away with a very different impression. Because if you take the perspective that these institutions are there to inform us honestly, they are broken. And the lies that they told were concrete. Matt Taibbi did a great job rounding up some of the lies. I'm going to read you a quote from his piece. Joe Scarborough on MSNBC said Rittenhouse unloaded about 60 rounds into the crowd. It was eight. Adding in another segment that he drove across state lines and started shooting people up. And in still another, that he was shooting wildly, running around, acting like a -a rent-a-cop, trying to protect property in a town he doesn't know his father and other relatives lived there. John Heilman on the same channel said Rittenhouse was arguably a domestic terrorist who crossed state lines to go and shoot people. Bakari Sellers on CNN said the only person who fired shots that night was Kyle Rittenhouse. He, of course, as we know, didn't fire first and protesters actually fired more rounds. Bill Ackman, the famous investor and founder of Pershing Square, tweeted something that I thought was very thoughtful and succinct before the verdict was announced. And and I'm going to read you what he wrote. This was on Twitter. He said, Last night, Neri and I watched several hours of Kyle Rittenhouse direct testimony and cross-examination. We came away believing that Kyle is telling the truth and that he acted in self-defense. We found him to be a civic-minded patriot with the history of helping his community as an EMT and fireman and training in his removing hate graffiti earlier that day from a local school and ultimately in volunteering to protect a business during the night of August 25th in Kenosha. Our firsthand impressions of Kyle were materially different from those we had previously formed based on media reports and opinion pa- pieces that we had consumed. I've always been frustrated to, this is, this is great. I've always been frustrated to read an inaccurate press report about a subject I know well. Yet somehow I continue to believe other articles in the same newspapers about subjects I know less well. Media and political bias are dividing our country and destroying lives. While we have not heard the entire trial, based on our assessment of Kyle on the stand, we believe that he will be found innocent by the jury. Oftentimes communities react negatively and even violently after a jury verdict where they are surprised by the outcome based on what they have previously read in the newspaper, seen on TV, or more likely been served on social media. I encourage you to watch the trial, or at a minimum his testimony and cross examination, before you form a view of his guilt or innocence. With respect to my own political bias, I'm not a gun owner nor a member of the NRA. On balance, I support stronger gun regulations and removing loopholes in the sale of guns. Unfortunately, it seems that society's view of Kyle's innocence depends more on one's view about gun control rather than what actually took place last August. Kyle Rittenhouse's life is at risk. Justice demands a fair trial. Society would benefit greatly if politics did not enter the courtroom and convict innocent people. And then he followed up with another tweet a little while later and said, just got a call from the media asking if my Twitter account was hacked. That is, the reporter couldn't conceive of the idea that I could believe that Kyle is innocent because I am not a right winger. Crazy. I mean, think about that for a second. You know, it, it makes an interesting point. We, we talk a lot about how social media is divisive. This isn't – it's not social media that's dividing us. This is the good old-fashioned bozos at MSNBC and CNN. And by the way, it's just it, – it, it's not like Fox News is any less guilty of doing this, whether it's in this case or in any other case. There's just as much divisive dreck, but this isn't social media. And we're going to talk more about that a little later. You know, even the fact that Rittenhouse shot at white people or that the vast majority of the protesters were white is not reported. Most people believe he shot black people and that he is a violent racist, and that's why he did it. And I I think one of the oddest aspects of this entire case has been this constant repetition of the phrase state lines to describe what he did, as if that was somehow significant. I don't see why state lines have some sort of ethical significance. I don't even think they have any legal significance in this case. He drove to a town where his father lived. It was 20 minutes away. He wanted to protect the town. The state lines are not relevant. But but when you repeat that over and over it seems like it's somehow more pernicious or incendiary as if he traveled a great distance to stir up trouble. When of course we know It was the anarchist rioters who had mostly come from much greater distances and crossed many more state lines. So maybe saying that makes you sound smarter or serious, but the implication of state lines is is purely jurisdictional. It doesn't matter for anything else. And it's another indicator of how the media has sought to mislead their audience. So coming back to my friends who are so outraged by this, And these are friends who I think are extremely intelligent. I just think they've been misled and lied to. One friend told me that she's expecting mass violence in this country. And I think that expectation comes from being fed a diet of panic. Here's Matt Taibbi again on on that topic because I think he had a really good point. He wrote, the huge media error here was of the Walls are closing in variety, except the context was far worse. The walls are closing in stupidity raised vague expectations among hashtag resistance audiences that at some unfixed point in time, Donald Trump would be pushed from office by scandal. In this case, the same people who poured out onto the streets last summer were told over and over that Rittenhouse was guilty, setting the stage for shock and horror if and when the wrong, quote, wrong verdict came back. Remember that? I mean, it was years of it that people were fed this, this constant, Oh, it's coming. He's going to be, he's going to be thrown out of office. He's a crook. He's going to prison. None of that was true. It was all bullshit. These media sources have shown us that they are not trustworthy, that they will lie to make a buck, that they are not reliable sources of information. And when we see them lie to us repeatedly, And I'm going to discuss another example shortly. Why do we trust them about anything? Why do we allow the fools to inform us about anything at all? I think part of the surprise, you know, and and, and I'm going to get off topic for a second, but part of the surprise of Donald Trump's victory in 2016 came from the fact that the media had been telling their audience for a year that it wasn't possible. Part of the the devastating impact of COVID-19 has come from the media profoundly misinforming people and driving massive divisions it's terrible so now uh, let's let's shift gears and talk about another example of this the mainstream media these content companies have waged war on facebook and and on the broader universe of social media companies because social media i see it is the greatest threat to the power of these legacy outlets you know in the old system the venerable newspapers like the Wall Street Journal they could set the narrative they could decide who has a voice and what is newsworthy they decided what to cover and to report but social media decentralizes that power it gives a voice to anyone and i use the term social media in a broad sense you know to me it encompasses facebook Twitter, Substack, many others. For years, Facebook and Twitter have been the primary threats to these media companies because they allowed anyone to build a following and to have a voice. And I think this year, the legacy media companies have tried their best to undermine and diminish social media. Now, Facebook just made this huge announcement of, of a pivot to the metaverse. And in the process of making this huge company defining pivot, they decided to strengthen the decentralized media to fight back in a very small way. Facebook gets the most attention because it's a huge public company, because it's the easiest to attack. It surely does not help that Mark Zuckerberg comes across as a robot every time he's in public. And I think Facebook is less important than it used to be here. And I think clearly Mark Zuckerberg agrees based on his recent decisions because Facebook, like the blue app Facebook, not the company, it seems to have turned into the social network for your harebrained aunt who lives in the woods and wants everyone to know what she uncovered about the microchips and the vaccine. And and the app has lost a lot of its younger users. I deactivated my Facebook account in 2016. I, I didn't even really use it for a couple of years before that. Younger people have moved to Instagram or Snapchat, maybe, but mostly to Instagram. And Twitter, Twitter allows people to build a following, to build a voice. There's lots of interesting content on Twitter. But Twitter user numbers just are not that meaningful. Like there are 211 million daily active users of Twitter. That's peanuts. It has this small number of very interesting people who have a a big following. And then there's a ton of morons and and fake accounts or, or, or anonymous accounts where people just write illegible comments and, and troll people. I think the most interesting new entrant is Substack. And I think Substack represents the biggest threat here to the legacy content companies. Because anyone with something interesting to say can create a Substack. And more importantly, they can monetize it. You no longer need to work for the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times to get paid to write opinion pieces. You can monetize your journalism on your own. The mainstream media loses its power as a gatekeeper. Now, side note, quickly, I'm one of those people who's writing and monetizing myself on Substack, which you know because you're listening to this and you enjoy my content. So please sign up. Become one of those paid subscribers. It's very easy to do. Librustler.substack.com slash subscribe. Okay, now it stands to reason that when the legacy media has a chance to fight back against the Facebooks of the world, they're going to do it. Even if it it reads as foolish to someone who pays attention. And earlier this year, the Wall Street Journal ran a series of stories that were sourced to supposedly leaked documents from a whistleblower named Frances Haugen. And I found the entire series to be quite boring. She took a bunch of documents that were readily available to Facebook employees, including research that Facebook had commissioned on how teenagers use Instagram. And the research showed that some teenagers said that they felt worse about themselves when using Instagram, but that a much larger number of teenagers felt better about themselves when using Instagram. I don't know that this offers much to read into about the state of teenagers or Instagram or anything else. Like, it's too bad that it makes some people feel worse. It's good that it makes some people people feel better. I was a little surprised that there were so many people who reported that it makes them feel better. But I don't think this furthers the conversation at all. Uh, in fact, I think it's it's probably just good that Facebook is commissioning this type of research, but it's not exactly the story of the year so the Wall Street Journal published these stories with the the fanfare that they would accord if they were announcing that President Biden is a space alien. They termed it the Facebook files, which made it sound so sinister and explosive, and it came out as if this was the biggest scandal since Big Tobacco lying about cigarettes being good for you in the 1980s. This was the Wall Street Journal's chance to smear a rival, and they did it with gusto. You know, countless overbreathed pieces ran in every publication. The Atlantic referred to Facebook as a, quote, hostile foreign power. How fucking nuts is that? One of the Wall Street Journal reporters of of this story, he appeared on Meet the Press. He was dressed like a moronic Rambo, who was giving a dispatch from a war zone. He had like a, a some sort of weird, I don't know what you call it, like a a, a, a a headband around his head, like he was in the middle of a battle. And these stories continually refer to the whistleblower who leaked these documents. This lady revealed her identity on 60 Minutes, which, by the way, is another irrelevant old media publication. And she did it with this perfectly choreographed marketing push, a Twitter handle, a website, newsletter, PR firm, a press tour. She didn't say anything that we did not already know. She just shared opinions that were common and conventional and uninteresting. And she was called in front of Congress to testify in a highly stage managed portion of her publicity tour. And this title of whistleblower was bestowed on her to denote virtue and courage in the face of adversity. It like, it gives her some kind of saintly status. You know, real whistleblowers like Edward Snowden and Julian Assange have been persecuted and punished. These, the, the real whistleblowers sought to reduce the reach and the power of the government. To meddle and to spy, and now these people are living in exile after demonstrating true bravery and courage and Meanwhile, Frances Hagen is just trying to accrue more power for herself, for the establishment media, and for the politicians who have exalted her so Of course they want to put her on a on a pedestal. Her entire message is that Facebook is allowing people to speak without intermediaries and regulation. So she's calling on the federal government to take more power for itself, to involve itself in regulating speech. She told Congress that she believes that the government needs a watchdog agency to regulate speech on social media and that she would, I love this, be happy to serve in such a role. What a sport. Now, I've written about it before. What, what's new here and worth highlighting is that Facebook as a company has rebranded itself. The company is now called Meta, which highlights their new focus on the metaverse. I did a podcast about the metaverse in August. I highly recommend listening to it if you have not already. You know, In, in summary, I'm very bullish on the concept of the metaverse. I think we will increasingly find ourselves utilizing a persistent digital space, both personally and professionally. And I think NFTs and cryptocurrencies will become way more important as part of that push. So for Facebook, I think rebranding the company, they are implicitly deprioritizing the original blue app. They're doing what Satya Nadella did with Windows at Microsoft when he took over, right? He demoted Windows to be one product in the company rather than the golden goose that could not be put at risk. It's frankly the same thing that Apple did when they released iTunes on Windows, which implicitly deprioritized the Mac. So as Facebook has made this major change, this huge strategic change, it hasn't gone to the legacy outlets like the Wall Street Journal to announce it and to give interviews and explain it. Why would they? Fuck 'em. Instead, Mark Zuckerberg has gone directly to the most interesting journalists and writers out there, and he's brought the message to them directly. Why does he need the Wall Street Journal to filter what he has to say and decide what they're going to print? They've already shown that they are hostile, that they report a lot of stupid stuff. So instead, Zuckerberg gave interviews to Ben Thompson at Stratechery who is you know the godfather of the paid newsletter business he gave an interview to Gary Vaynerchuk Gary V is 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 a wonderful talker and writer look these legacy media institutions have lost our trust and it is time to start considering the source when they report things to us we we have to remember that they have incentives and they will report in a way that maximizes profits and eyeballs not in the way that is most accurate. People do what they are incentivized to do. Quick tangent, but illustrates this. A a good example is the way that podcasters have taken over a lot of the market for comedy, for entertainment. And last week, Michael Che, the host of Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live, started throwing shade on Tim Dillon. Tim Dillon is, of course, an incredibly successful comedian and podcaster. He's much funnier than Michael Che. But he takes attention and eyeballs away from SNL. Why fuck with SNL when you can get much funnier and more creative jokes elsewhere? So of course Michael Che is incentivized to talk shit about him. It's time to stop relying on these broken institutions to feed us information, whether it is the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, any other source. These are just collections of people with biases. And, and they're bitter that they've lost some of their power. They're trying to to grab hold of, of it and cl- cling to it. People, institutions, they, they, they talk their books. That's what they'll always do it. And for the Wall Street Journal, talking its book is about reclaiming some of the power it had in the glory days. It's about taking Facebook and Twitter and Substack and undermining their centralized authority. Mark Zuckerberg made this great strategic move by bypassing the legacy media. But that legacy media in its, its waning days, and, and truly it has become irrelevant, that legacy media is going to be thrashing around to try to reclaim their lost splendor. It's time for a quick word from our sponsor. I love podcasts. You love podcasts. Osama bin Laden loved podcasts, I think. He was a big true crime buff. And I published the Lee show using Anchor. I think it's a great service. I tested out a number of options. This was clearly the best. They have great sound quality. It's the same company. Anchor is made by the same company that created the weapons that cause Havana syndrome. How cool is that? And it's owned by Spotify as part of their quest to destroy Neil Young. Anchor provides the tools that let you record and edit from your phone, from your computer. I record my audio. I upload it and distribute it to all the major podcasting platforms. It's very easy. They'll get you on Spotify. They'll get you on Apple Podcasts, all the leading players, and you can make big bucks. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Now, there's one more topic I want to cover today, and this one's more about informing all of you about something that's happening that I think is noteworthy. It ties into a topic we've discussed in the past, but I think it's noteworthy it hasn't gotten a ton of coverage. And uh and I want to talk about Belarus. Um for many years Belarus has been a terrible place and it's a place that's getting worse. And the cause is the president of the country, a guy named Alexander Lukashenko. Lukashenko is a dictator. He's been the president since 1994, so no matter your view on term limits. 27 years is far too long. And he's remained in power by oppressing his people and allying himself with Vladimir Putin, his dictatorial counterpart in Russia. Putin supports Lukashenko even when when he misbehaves, and, and he does that plenty. And he's created two crises this past year that are unacceptable. And he must face punishment. He must be pushed from power. And tying into that is that Europe has played into the trap set by Russia to give up Europe's in, in, energy independence and weaken itself diplomatically. So first in, in Belarus, you know, the, the 2020 Belarusian presidential election, election in quotes, was a farce. There was widespread vote rigging. And when protests erupted, they were put down violently. The UN documented more than 450 cases of torture and ill treatment of detainees, including sexually abusing and raping people as punishment. Lukashenko is not recognized by the US, the UK, by the European Union as the legitimate president of Belarus, because he's not that. He's just a power-hungry dictator and a thug. Now, of course, he, hes <laughs> it sort of tells you something that he's recognized as the president by the usual suspects of Russia, China, Iran, Armenia, Syria, Venezuela, and Cuba. So it's not exactly good company, right? That That's like having Hitler and, and Stalin and Mussolini say, yeah, he's a great guy. That's, that's not really the compliment that you want. And Lukashenko's strongest critics have tried to escape the country. And they've gone into hiding, often in Poland and Lithuania, which are neighboring countries. And those countries have given shelter to Lukashenko's enemies. So these activists are there. They're protesting and, and working in exile. Now, his, his, Lukashenko's two latest schemes are particularly nefarious. The first one was the hijacking of a Ryanair flight in May of this year. This is, it, it's crazy to hear about it. So the flight was en route from Greece to Lithuania. And on board the plane was a man named Roman Protasevich who was a journalist and one of Lukashenko's strongest critics. And Protasevich had attended a conference in Greece, and he was on his way back to Lithuania, where he was living in exile. And as the plane passed through Belarusian airspace, Lukashenko had his people send an email with a bomb threat. And the bomb threat said that if that there was a bomb on board, and if the, the plane entered Lithuanian airspace, it would explode. Then he sent... MiG 29 fighter jets to intercept the plane and force it to reroute and land in Minsk in Belarus, even though that was far out of the way and just landing in Lithuania would have been much closer. And when the plane landed, Protasevich knew that they were coming for him. He was terrified. He said, They're, they're here for me. And immediately they boarded the plane, they escorted him off. Obviously, the plane didn't have a bomb on it. And then they're like, All right, you can go ahead. And the flight per- was, was permitted to continue on to Lithuania. So they hijacked this plane just to get one of his political enemies off the plane. And the second incident is something that's ongoing, and it's truly horrifying. Lukashenko is angry at Poland for housing his critics. So what he's done is he dispatches passenger jets to some of the worst places on earth, Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Myanmar, and he he rounds up refugees with the promise of freedom in europe so you have these poor and desperate people that become pawns in his game and so they go willingly hoping for the best they get on the planes and when they arrive they're bust directly to the border with poland where there's a giant field and then they're trapped there they're just they're 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 stuck between a fence on one side and the border on the other side and and as the economist wrote about this arrivals in minsk Are whisked through the woods to a spot on the border where, far from swiftly crossing into Poland and embarking on the supposed opportunity to move around the Schengen free travel zone, migrants end up squeezed between the EU's razor wire fences and Belarusian men with guns, unable to go forward or back. Poland does not want these refugees. Poland has done nothing to bring them there, to bring them into the country. The New York Times said the right wing governing party in Poland has long called non European migrants a threat to Polish culture and sovereignty, and its response to the current group has been predictably heated. It describes the conditions as an attack by Belarus and has deployed thousands of troops to keep the migrants out. See, of course, Lukashenko remembers how politically divisive it was in 2015 when refugees streamed into Europe. And he seems intent on recreating that chaos, on on harvesting it, on harnessing it to weaken his opponents. So Belarus continues to amass refugees, now numbering, it seems, in the tens of thousands and deliver them to the border just to make Poland look bad for not accepting them and to punish Poland for sheltering his critics. He is desperate to have the sanctions that have been imposed on Belarus lifted. And so he's trying to force the European Union to act. Now, one of the ways he's trying to do this, and this ties into something we've talked about before. Is there are gas pipelines, natural gas pipelines that run from Russia to Europe and they pass through Belarus. Now, Europe used to have a ton of electricity from nuclear power. It's shutting all of that down, which is one of the worst decisions I could imagine. And in the process, they are building new pipelines from Russia that sacrifice that energy independence. It makes Europe dependent on Russia. So Lukashenko has said, if Poland does not accept the refugees and end the sanctions, Poland, Russia, uh, 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 Belarus will turn off the natural gas. And they would do this just as winter is starting, as shortages abound, as gas prices have skyrocketed. This is a dangerous guy. He is an evil man, and he must be forced from power. The European Union cannot relent in its efforts to push him out of office. And this highlights even more something that we've talked about and that we, we should revisit that Germany was foolish to build this Nord Stream two pipeline. That they fell for the, the, the con game from Russia and for Germany, from, from Germany's corrupt chancellor, Gerhard Schroeder. Because Nord Stream two further undermines the ability of Europe to push back on bad actors like Lukashenko. Thank you for joining me today. Remember, I write and record this podcast to share a point of view that is not found elsewhere in the media, and I depend on your support to do it. So please sign up as a paid subscriber. You can do it in the show notes for the podcast. You can go to leighbressler.substack.com slash subscribe. And if you enjoyed this piece, feel free to share it with your friends and colleagues. Happy Thanksgiving, and I'll be back with more soon.